happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America, around the world, and in the basement of somewhere, probably possibly in Missoula, Montana, or Helena, or I don't know where, but he's flooded. He, he's colored with yellow light, but he's looking good on the iPad, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Wes Fryer, and I'm coming to you from Oklahoma City, where it was a balmy 82 degrees today, and uh, there's exciting things in the air around here. Um, so anyway, but we're here to, 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 uh, get, get in touch with the guru of the ed tech North who is flexibly able to join us from anywhere. So good evening, Dr. Jason Neifer. Good evening, Dr. Fryer. Uh, yes, I'm enjoying you from, well, I'm live from my parents' basement tonight, which is not really the thing you want to say when you're at the height of your career, but when I am not a dweller of my parents' basement. Um, I am the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, located about three hours from here uh, over a mountain pass uh, in beautiful Missoula, Montana. But yes, I am uh, at my parents' house in, uh, I'm about I know, half a mile from where I grew up in uh, beautiful Great Falls, Montana. It's two blocks away from lovely Great Falls High School, my alma mater from a long time ago, 30 years this summer. And I'm glad, Wes, that we could finally get together this week. Uh, some schedules and some life uh, circumstances have gotten in the way, but I'm looking forward to talking at tech with you tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Well, last week was was my fault. Uh, sometimes we have brain failure, uh, and anyway, yeah, it's just been it's just been crazy. So it's good to get together as always. Whenever we skip a week, we have an extra long list of links. Uh, what are we going to talk about? What what are these links? that we're talking about, Dr. Neifer? Well, uh, we like to take a look at news across the techosphere and then shoot it through kind of the education prism in sincere hopes of getting some insight for prep schools and, and broadly uh, education. You can find our links at the EdTech Situation website, edtechsr.com slash links. And they're also located usually, uh, at least our article tiles in our show notes that Wes um, crafts each week. But uh, we have several uh, categories as we do every week. Uh, we have a lot of Google news that's mostly focused on the new Chrome OS Flex, some Microsoft news, uh, some smart uh, IoT or smart uh, home IoT news, um, Apple news, uh, exciting event coming up next week, cybersecurity news, social media news, uh, the tech correction te category, which we like to talk about here on EdTech SR, some software news. Uh, I would imagine we may get a little deep in the Ukraine-Russian war news. There's a lot of tech implications there, some of which directly uh, impact schools. Uh, our favorite category, miscellaneous, and one tonight on Geeks of the Week. Um, Wes, is there something you want to talk about first tonight? Oh, goodness. Well, shoot. Why don't we just go ahead and go? go right to the Ukraine, although we, we're not going to stay here the whole time. Maybe we should do the real, you know, the hardcore tech news first. But it's a, it's a rabbit hole, folks. <laughs> yeah, we're going to jump into it. <clears throat> so I, I was able to jump on a webinar today, uh, this afternoon. I count like just the last 15 minutes with General David Petraeus, who was our commander down over in Afghanistan for a while. And anyway, it was just, you know, his take. <clears throat> I don't have a link to that in the show notes. I'm I'm, I'm not sure if it'll be available openly as an archive, but, you know, he was just talking about social media and the fact that this this is a real different situation. The information war. Um, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Angry Planet, and they have a great Russian um, academic and, and expert there talking about, you know, the information war with 
uh, Ukraine, you know, largely winning. But anyway, it is, man, we, we really, this is unprecedented. We really haven't seen anything quite like this in our lifetimes. So um, there's a bunch of articles here. I think I'll start perhaps with the New York Times op-ed that Tom Friedman had on February the 25th. Um, through our school, I'm a subscriber of the New York Times, and then I actually have my own uh, educational subscription that I do for the Washington Post. So, gosh, I don't think this link, the link, when you do a gift link, it is crazy long. And so I'm going to try to shorten this for a little bit. But um, as like many people know, um, Tom Friedman, uh, author of The World is Flat, very popular um, columnist and op-ed writer for the New York Times, uh, really just talking about how extraordinary this particular conflict is for a lot of different reasons. Okay, and there is the, the link. Um, so, you know, he talks about how we will sometimes overhear the world will never be the same and, you know, people um, talking about things being unprecedented. But, you know, the, the globalized world that we live in, um, the fact that Russia is, you know, making an, uh, like a play for empire that, that seems to be just completely out of touch with the reality of economics, um, the way in which the West has come together to put these really, really harsh sanctions on. And we've seen things like, you know, Germany that was, you know, not previously sending any weapons into conflict zones, you know, doing that. Um, but we've got these social media uh, connections and, this whole information war, you know, on top of the actual physical war. And um, I, I think basically his point in this editorial is um, we're at an inflection point. This is something that we really haven't seen before. Um, our wired world, you know, can be very, very unstable. But, um, you know, he's predicting it. Well, he says he wishes he could predict that Ukraine will be Putin's Waterloo. Um, we don't, you know, nobody knows what's going to be happening, but we definitely are, are, I think, surprised at how well the Ukraine has held out against Russia. Um, and it just, it seems rather surreal. Um, I'll do one other article and then we can go to some, some other ones that you've got under there. Cause I know you had said several too, but, um, this one was, was from Wired on February 27th. Ukraine's volunteer IT army is hacking in uncharted territory. And the quotation that I actually grabbed and, uh, and tweeted um, was to the Google form that was used for recruiting people to this army. And um, it was, here's the quotation as Twitter comes up. Um, the government-backed IT army builds on other Ukrainian hacking efforts. On February 25th, Yegor Aushev, who has founded multiple cybersecurity companies in the Ukraine, made the first call for volunteers. The time has come to maximize cyber protection of our country, Aushev wrote in a paste on Facebook, which is reported by Reuters. Those wanting to offer their skills could sign up using a Google form. They could be involved in defense or attack. Volunteers were asked how many years experience they have in 12 specific areas, ranging from open source intelligence gathering and social engineering to malware development and DDoS operations. Those signing up were also asked to provide the name of a trusted reference who could vouch for their credibility. I mean, in that particular effort, what some people have said is that's probably not going to change the whole course of the war, but what, what is going to happen? There's, there was a Cisco security researcher I was hearing today talking about, there's a lot of people that really don't know what they're doing, uh, engaging in, 
cyber attack and cyber defense. And so um, there's a lot of people who that do know what they're doing who are involved in this. And so whether this is going to be contained, whether this is going to escalate, whether we're going to see the release of some zero-day vulnerabilities and some uh, some worms or some other things that are going to have uh, you know an impact far beyond the borders of the Ukraine and Russia, we just don't know. It is a it's a crazy world out there, folks. Absolutely. Um... The two things I wanted to share, one of which I have a link for and one of them doesn't, is that one of the way, well, first of all, I, I should, should you know, full disclosure, I was a social studies teacher in, in, uh, when I was in the classroom, and um, these are exactly the times, uh, well, I miss teaching every day, uh, to be honest, but um, these are the times when I really miss being in a social studies classroom. Um, I, every year it becomes... Um, um, it becomes more profound for me, but I was in the classroom on, on 9-11, and um, not only was that an extraordinary day because I, you know, had to shepherd 150 kids through a very confusing day with lots of information. It was also kind of the beginning of, of uh, uh, you know, mass internet media, so, you know, not only did we have cable on all day, that I was, you know, behind my desk, you know, looking at different news sources and stuff, but... Um, you know, if you are in any kind of classroom today that, that can talk about uh, the, the Russian uh, attack on Ukraine, my guess is, is that you're dealing with extraordinary amounts of, of mis- and disinformation. And if you're encouraging students to uh, research this, which can be a, 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 a very valuable uh, lesson uh, in, in real-time world news, um, one thing to remember is that it's more complex than ever to try to... Um, uh, uh, to, to wade through the, um, uh, whether it's, it's purposeful or, or accidental mis- and disinformation that exists. And I found a really extraordinary thread. This was early uh, days uh, it, in the, um, the conflict, but a reporter um, from um, USA Today, his name is Daniel F- uh, Funk, um, uh, uh, posted a number of uh, out-of-context images and videos have circulated widely in social media on February 24th, and it, it kind of shows you the character of things, because it's not only, you know, perhaps information that uh, people uh, are, are trying to, to, to change your mind or get you to think one thing or another. A lot of people just post things um, that, that are real. They're just they're just uh, poorly tagged or have nothing to do with the current conflict. And there's this whole chain um, of things that uh, were mostly um, uh, uh, not related to the current conflict. A photo of Ukrainians praying. Uh, it was a real image, but it was from 2019. Um, a photo of a supposedly a, a Russian fighter jet that had been shot down, um, but it wasn't. It was a, a, an, a, an air show. Um, disaster that happened uh, in 2015 during uh, Russia's National Flag Day. And, you know, even though we're in an extraordinary media-rich environment, don't let, you know, don't let your guard down, right? And help students understand by by looking at the bigger picture, right? And also, if, if kids are bringing things into your classroom, that's awesome, right? That's super great. The kids care enough or want to be part of a discussion, talk to their peers and you about a current event. But don't, you know, make sure that you're helping them uh, look at the information, look at point of view, look at the resource, get verification from other uh, source citations, and let's not waste this, 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 this crisis in the classroom, because the bottom line is, is that it's a, it's a, it's a live lab and helping kids navigate 
our media-rich environment with traditional and untraditional sources. The other thing I want to talk about for just a moment is that this is, I, I, I thought about this a lot over the weekend, and I noticed that, that Google Maps is no longer showing traffic data in the Ukraine, and I wish I had saved the screenshot. I can't find it on my phone. But one of the ways you knew, for example, that, uh, uh, that, that main uh, roads were getting clogged as people left Kiev, for example, um, was that Google Maps were showing traffic patterns and uh, in some cases closed roads and some places were barricaded for security purposes. And um, that, was, that was one image I had over the weekend. I just noticed uh, that they're not showing transit, or I'm sorry, they're not showing um, uh, those maps anymore. They are showing transit maps though. And so for example, one of the main um, subway lines uh, is, is closed in central Kiev and you know, there's a big red X through it and shows you the other lines which are still up and running. But also as the world has started to block Russian flights from their airspace, you can go to the, uh, the main uh, Moscow International Airport, which is the busiest airport in Russia and the second busiest in, in all of Europe, and you can see all these flights canceled and delayed. And there's just no other time in history where we've had a major military conflict like this that you have just a shocking amount of data uh, at your hands to kind of watch it in real time. And, you know, if you're a bit of a, 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 a I guess, hyper-aware news junkie like myself, um you know, but it's it, it's it's a really extraordinary time to watch this conflict unfolding, let alone the fact that anyone can have an opinion about this and publish it to a worldwide audience on Twitter. Um, and watching that go back and forth is, is pretty extraordinary. But it, it is a, a certainly a, a very different feel than, you know, and who knows if this is going to turn into a, a larger, uh, maybe world, more world dominant conflict. But the bottom line is, is that this is not this is not business as usual in, in context of conflict. So uh, it's been really mind blowing to watch this uh, watch this play out. Thank you so much for sharing the Daniel Funk uh, link. You know that highlights a lot of things. Number one, the fact that basically all of us are ill equipped to be able to directly filter, vet, and, and verify. Um, quote unquote, live images, you know, coming from a, a, a battle zone or really coming from any kind of conflict area, um, those kinds of misrepresentations taking an explosion or some kind of uh, just, you know, photograph completely out of context in a, in a different place. It's something that information researchers have been talking about for quite a while. And so, of course, SIFT, which is the web literacy framework that uh, Mike Caulfield pioneered, uh, S for stop, I for investigate the source, um, F, uh, or sorry, T for trace claims to their original source, and F, um, I'm getting this out of, out of order, no, um, find better coverage, and then T is to trace the claim. So yeah, anyway, it goes in order of sift. But the, the place I'm gonna start is with stop, because we really do wanna be careful today what we're going to retweet, what we're going to reshare. I would encourage folks to, um, you know, look for things that have links and then consider that source prior to sharing it. Um, we're, one of the things that they talk about, I'll get this, this Angry Planet um, episode into the show notes if people want to want to check this out because it really is fantastic. Um, you know, Putin is, President Putin, want to call him president, I guess. Uh, uh, Vladimir Putin is an extremely um, secretive uh, person. And he, you know, 
he had not made these plans well known to the people, uh, I mean, to, to even a lot of his military folks, people in government. And so, you know, according to this expert, um, you know, it, and I'll say this expert, and I'm not even citing his name. So let me say his name. Uh, so this is from Angry Planet. The episode is called What the War Means for Russia. Uh, it was published yesterday on March 2nd. And the expert is Mark Galeotti, uh, G-A-L-E-O-T-T-I. Um, Mark has been on the show, I think, more than any other uh, person. And this this Angry Planet, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal podcast. I just can't speak highly enough of it. Um, you know, he he was he reports that that this was a, a lot of the leaders of Russia found and even in the military found out about the invasion the same time that we did in the West in terms of real time. And so there wasn't a case of lots and lots of um, like disinformation experts and, and cyber warfare people being ready to go with all of all of this stuff. And so anyway, that's one thing I want to mention Wikipedia. This is a fantastic opportunity to talk to your students about Wikipedia. I'm dropping the link into the uh, chat of the English Wikipedia article for the 2020, 2022, if I can say the name of the year, Russian invasion of Ukraine. One of the things that we see happen on Wikipedia in general, and contrast this to social media, where we're going to see a curated feed based on the algorithms of the platform, whether that's Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or YouTube or whatever, everybody gets to see the same version of a Wikipedia article and the way in which things are hashed out on the talk pages between the editors, the ways that things will be elevated in terms of any, you know, anonymous folks can't come in and edit it. Wikipedia is absolutely incredible. And I think in my next season of professional life, which who knows, maybe I'll have an announcement sometime soon after this week, who knows? Um, I, I want to teach a class like on Wikipedia and hyperlinked writing because both things are so, so powerful. And blogging has really kind of fallen out of vogue uh, with the rise of social media. But it's a great time to talk about Wikipedia. Um, I can drop the lesson that I do, which is basically Wikipedia as Launchpad. Um, there's a wonderful PBS crash course video that John Green did about Wikipedia, debunking a lot of the perceptions that people have that it's worthless, but saying, look, we're not going to use this as our primary academic source, but it can be a phenomenal place to launch our research and the, the sources that you have at the bottom of articles, and especially the way with breaking news, Wikipedia articles are an incredibly dynamic place to see how information flows, how things are vetted, how sources are verified. It's just phenomenal. And I can't think of a better way to intersect you know, web literacy and media literacy, current events, and the need that we have to be savvy and, and not be taken in by gossip and rumor and also flat out disinformation and misinformation. I think it can really be a, an excellent catalyst for those conversations. Yep, absolutely. So, and, you know, and, and, and again, teaching current events is, is, Difficult. Um, I think it's, I think, even more uh, difficult in this era of kind of heightened uh, perception about schools and, and, and notions of um, agendas and such. But the bottom line is, is that I think your students need you 
um, to both help develop skills here, because right, part of the point of education is to uh, 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 educate how to get along in the world and how to engage in current events and with each other um, and, 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 and with the rest of the world. I think that's something important to keep in mind. Um, but don't shy away from this. I think that, that students take a lot of solace when their classrooms are helping them understand the world around them. And this is an important event. Uh, it impacts us all, uh, perhaps some more directly than others, but it's, it's, it's a historical event that um, you should, you know, take the opportunity to work through with your students. I think that, that that's important too. It also in terms of, of calming some anxieties and some fears, you know, I had some of my, my sixth graders concerned, is this going to yes. be a world war? Are we going to have a nuclear conflict? Uh, you know, and so talking about NATO and talking about, you know, um, the treaty and, and what the, our president has said and um, being able to talk through some of that was, was important. I'll pick up just a couple other articles here. One of the things that's hard, and let me tell you, it is, it is so hard to talk about controversial issues today in the classroom, certainly in a private school in central Oklahoma. It, it probably is everywhere, but uh, we need students and all of us to be aware of, of bias and the fact that different sources, you know, can have a different take on news. I personally do not use the term fake news at all because that term has been, I think, weaponized to try to discredit journalism in general and just overall. Um, but, but identifying and talking about bias and perspective is important. Guess what? Russia today is the official news arm of Russia. And so we, you don't have to get into a Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal as far as the United States. It's, it's a little, I don't know if this is jujitsu or Aikido or something, but when we talk about the moon hoax and conspiracy theory in my class, we're kind of avoiding, you know, direct QAnon, vaccinate, vaccination politics, things like that to talk about more historical things. So in the same way, we can talk about how news sources coming out of Russia are really different than what we see in other parts of the West. And so um, there's a tweet uh, from Andrew Roth, um, who said back on February 26th, turn on Russian TV today and you won't find special bulletins about the ongoing invasion of Kiev, just normal Saturday morning movies, talk shows, a DACA renovation show, no war, no problem. Um, you know, Russia's ability to <coughs> control the access that their people have to media is certainly really different today than, you know, it was years ago. But in terms of the official news channels and where a lot of people get their news and, and we have folks doing the same thing here in the in the United States, it's not just all social media. There's a lot of mainstream news impact. Um, it's a it's a big deal. And so there's a huge contrast between what Russian television and, and media outlets have been portraying and what other parts of the world are portraying as well. And so on that note as well, CNN Business reported today that Russia Today America has ceased its productions and has laid off most of its staff. And so um, I don't know how many folks have really thought about Russia today. I remember I saw an interview that they did with one of the, you know, members of the band Queen at one point. And I thought, well, that's kind of cool. Oh, that's interesting. What is that? I mean, as an adult, I just, and this was a year, a couple of years ago, I just did not have very much knowledge about that source. And I wasn't thinking about new sources to the degree that I am today. And I will say this, it's important for us to help students. And again, this goes back to SIFT 
finding trustworthy sources and, and not just saying, of course, I've, I read that online, I read that on the internet, or even saying I read that, you know, on a website that's a, that has a newspaper or that has a TV channel. Who is it? And again, I think looking at, at Russia yeah. today as an example of a state sponsored propaganda arm of a government that is, you know, violating the, the UN charter and, you know, violating territorial integrity of, of, of a sovereign nation. And, you know, it's just basically egregiously violating all norms of international, you know, state behavior. Uh, I think it, it's a, it's a good opportunity and it's an opportunity to, to talk about something that we want students to be aware of. And it's kind of ironic, maybe, but domestically, that may be more politically sensitive to to try to talk about. You may not want to have your kids. Maybe you do. But but in my case, I'm not going to I'm not going to be having my kids put Fox News head to head with MSNBC or CNN. I'm just not going to do that with the constituency that we have in the political climate that we have right now. But I will not have a problem talking about Russia today and the ways that you know, the media that's coming out of Russia is coming. So anyway, it's another opportunity. And I think some of those um, things that journalists are highlighting for us can really be helpful. And I'm really going to use the Daniel Funk um, Twitter thread that you shared. I think that that is a fantastic one. And if you, by the way, find other other links, you could share those here in our in our uh, live chat, if you happen to be with us live. Um, but also, you know, reach out to us on Twitter. We always give our handles at the end of the show and that kind of thing. But this is a dynamic, um, quickly changing situation. Um, and it's a teachable moment. You know, we're taking half our show to talk about it tonight, but it really is important. And it has very good intersections with understanding technology, understanding the roles of social media, understanding civics and what our responsibilities are as citizens, both to be informed and then to try and be responsible when we influence the folks in our sphere by sharing things out, by amplifying things with likes and retweets or reshares and, and that kind of thing. So anything else you'd like to say on that topic, Dr. Nifrom? Uh, yeah, actually, I want to use this to actually pivot to another topic that's related. This is related to cybersecurity, and this is very specific to schools. Um, there, uh, This is from Forbes on February 25th. Um, uh, the, the cybersecurity agency of the United States government has issued a shields up warning about Russian cyber attacks. And, um, you know, uh, it, the news media has uh, not been shy about noting the extraordinary prowess of, of, of the Russian government to unleash uh, cyber attacks on the rest of the world. And it's just a reminder that schools are an easy target uh, for attacks like these, not because of the, you know, kind of real damage uh, that it does, but the perceptual damage that it does. Like the vast majority of uh, uh, school data is relatively low value data. Yes, it's personal, but that's what makes it so uh, attractive because it can create a lot of fear, uncertainty and doubt when that data is hacked or, or worse released publicly. And so just a reminder that especially if you work in IT in your school or if you are an influencer in your school on, on technology, you know, uh, uh, making sure you have unique passwords, being extra cautious about phishing emails and other types of social engineering style attacks. Now is the time to double down on those efforts. And, um, you know, you might think that, you know, why would a school be an attractive target in an era of, you know, in an actual military conflict in Eastern Europe between two significant uh, 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 um, cyber powers? And, and the answer is, is because 
about the, you know, we're in the United States of America, and um, a lot of that energy is aimed here. So now's uh, as good of time as ever to double down on that. And then uh, a somewhat related article, and we share an article like this about every three months, but I, I, I keep harping on this because I think it's so important to think about. Uh, this is a, an article from CNBC on February 27th. Um, a, a yet another list of leaked passwords. Um, there's a mobile security firm called Lookout, which has uh, found or taken a lot of the archives of passwords on the so-called dark web and found the 20 most common passwords. And you will be shocked, shocked, Dr. Fryer, to find out that your favorite password, 123456, um, is the most popular password in those password databases, followed by 123456789, Query password one two three four five one two three four five six seven eight one 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 two three four five six seven one two three one two three query one two three one q two w three e a default zero abc one two three six five four three two one one two three three two one um uh, i love you um uh six 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 all in the top twenty. And, um, you know, again, I would remind everyone of, of our advice to utilize a password manager, create a unique password for every website that you use, turn on two-factor authentication and other extra security measures. But, um, you know, security, uh, cybersecurity is the new black. So be sure that you are uh, using a good security hygiene on the Internet. Hey, Google, technology fear therapy, TEDx. And maybe someone you know might have a little talk uh, discussing that. I don't know if I've mentioned that on the show, but anyway, that finally went live from last March. Yes, password managers, unique passwords, auditing your passwords, making sure that you are making yourself as small a target as you possibly can. All right, very good. So hey, that's uh, you've cleared. We should we should give a prize for clearing out a particular category. So that clears out the <laughs> category of cybersecurity with two articles. That only leaves us with the categories of Google, Microsoft, Smart IoT, Apple, social media tech correction software, and miscellaneous <laughs> to get to in the next twenty three minutes. So where would you like to go to next? We should we talk well, about? Um, let's actually let's do um, let's do the Chrome articles and let's talk a little Apple. Um, Two weeks ago, we reported on this podcast that there is a new version of Chrome OS called Chrome OS Flex. And a reminder, if this is news to you, um, we've talked several times on this podcast about Cloud Ready, the product from Neverware that took Chromium OS, the open source version of Chrome OS, and turned it into an installable operating system that worked pretty close to Chrome OS. And the cool thing about it is you could take a PC or a Mac um, including hundreds of supported versions of, of, of those laptop and desktop computers and install a Chrome OS-like experience. I loved it. In fact, if anything, I probably, you know, as an experiment and as kind of a, a amusement, uh, installed it on, on several computers to see if it would work. And Google bought uh, Neverware, I believe it was last year, it was in 2021 when they bought Neverware, and they finally have released their version of Neverware under the Chrome OS moniker, Chrome OS Flex. And it's in beta right now, but this is going to replace uh, Neverware, uh, Neverware's uh, cloud-ready product. And basically what it allows you to do is take um, one of hundreds of supported PCs or Macs or a lot of non-supported PCs or Macs and allow you to install a 
Chrome OS-like experience that can actually be managed like a Chrome OS device uh, as part of, if you're in a Chrome district, or I'm sorry, Google district, uh, there's a Chrome management interface you can use as an administrator. Several interesting articles about this, and I'm not entirely sure if I understand why, but there seems to be a lot of energy around Chrome OS Flex, more than there was for Cloud Ready. So the first article I want to share from you is Ars, Ars Technica from February 16th. They argue that Chrome OS Flex is a really ideal uh, off-ramp for millions of PCs that can't run Windows 11. And as we've reported several times on this podcast, one of the controversial things, is that the way to put it, about Windows 11 is that it takes a relatively modern PC that meets uh, some pretty high standards, a special kind of security chip in your BIOS, um, plus uh, a, a, a processor in the last, I think it's the last four years, and my, um, uh, my, my now replaced Windows uh, uh, PC at work, which was a Surface Book, uh, first-generation service book, which is still a, a, a very fast and, and, and a snappy platform on Windows 10, is not supported by Windows 11. And so they argue that, you know, especially if, if you are in an environment that's managed and you want to stay up with security updates, the best way to do that would be to install Chrome OS Flex. And I find that to be an interesting prospect. And I think it also highlights the challenge of Windows 11 having very high standards when it comes to hardware. Um, and the bottom line is, is that if you're in a school, um, my guess is if you've got several four and five-year-old PCs, those are not headed to the trash bin yet because schools need to get more than three or four years out of um, their hardware. Uh, so that was an interesting article. And then the rest, uh, or I'm sorry, two more of these articles are related to people that are running Chrome OS Flex on older Mac laptops. And um, this one's really interesting to me because, first and foremost, Apple's pretty famous for supporting hardware long past what other manufacturers might do. Although, in, in defense of, of Microsoft, you can install Windows 10 uh, reliably and safely on 12, 13, 14-year-old hardware. Um, but a lot of people that are are running versions of Mac OS that haven't updated the last four or five times have wiped those devices and put Chrome OS Flex on there, and it works pretty well. Um, the, the one example I have from a, a blog called Mac O'Clock um, on February 27th is a 13-inch MacBook Pro from mid-2012, and it works quite well. Um, the, the hardware uh, is, is compatible uh, it's even um, good enough to where it, it maps the uh, function keys on top of the, the keyboard uh, as you would expect them to. And Mac Research has a wonderful web page about how to set up Chrome OS Flex um, on your Mac. And again, I would guess that for uh, some users, going from Mac OS to Chrome OS might be a bridge too far. That's also true of, of power users on a PC as well. The one thing I would say, however, is that I honestly believe that, especially if you live mostly on the web, that's me, that's Dr. Fryer, that's a lot of power users that have, have kind of taken cloud computing to the extreme or live their life in the cloud. My guess is, is that you could figure out workflows and be very efficient. But the cool thing about Chrome OS Flex is that... Um, 
uh, you can, uh, it, it's going to get updates. It's very svelte. Uh, it's, it's a, a minimalistic um, operating system. And so, you know, 10, 11-year-old hardware, uh, especially Mac tends to use the higher-end stuff in, in, in their, their platforms, uh, chances are I think you're going to do pretty well and you're going to have a very responsive and, and usable interface, whereas an 11-year-old copy of OS X or even a more recent copy, the, the newest you can install, is probably going to feel pretty sluggish uh, on that hardware. So that's something to keep in mind as well. Um, and one more thing, and then, uh, uh, sorry, I'm kind of rambling on about, about Chrome OS Flex. I'm very excited about this. Um, there was an interesting tweet the other day, and it came from a gentleman by the name of, of Paul Heather, who is on Twitter at Primary Netman, and he is a um, network manager for three primary schools, according to his profile. He figured out something that's pretty extraordinary. Um, I talked about this a little bit two weeks ago, but Chrome OS Flex is not an automatic option for uh, Chromebooks that have expired and are no longer getting updates. And the reason why is because you can't install out of the box Chrome OS Flex um, for or on your, your, your Chromebook because uh, the BIOS that Chromebooks come with don't allow you to install third-party operating systems. But two weeks ago, I shared a process um, on iFixit where you can uh, essentially install a new BIOS or a ground level uh, software on your old Chromebook and install Chrome OS Flex. And what Mr. Heather found out was that uh, if you have that uh, a Chromebook enrolled on your Chrome, uh, I'm sorry, your, your Google domain as a managed device, it will still recognize that device um, as managed by by that, so you can continue to to not have to buy, buy a new license. Now, I don't know how well this works. You know, if you have 500 expired Chromebooks, my guess is it probably takes an hour per Chromebook to to hack through it in that way. But if you have, you know, uh, if you're getting rid of a bunch of Chromebooks, take the 10 or 15 best ones before you uh, uh, send the rest of them to the recycle or the trash heap, um, and um, um, uh, uh, use them for bench computers, use them as backup computers, uh, use them as the junky ones you keep um, on hand um, um, for uh, uh, quick replacements. And I think that's a way to extend your hardware out. And I can confirm that it's relatively easy to do because I've done it on two expired Chromebooks now and it works great. So I know I'm, I'm giving extra super nerdy vibes off tonight about Chrome OS Flex, but what are you talking about? I extra know, vibes? I, here's a shock that, that, you know, a host of the EdTech Situation Room podcast is giving off nerdy vibes, newsflash, but uh, yeah, super great stuff. And, and um, I'm really excited about this and, you know, I as we've talked about in the past uh, several months, I've kind of gone back to Apple World. Man, do I love Chrome OS! It's still yeah. such a wonderful operating hey, system. It's okay; we don't have to choose just one. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, it has been two weeks, but Jason's enthusiastic, you know, endorsement of, of Flex uh, Chrome Flex <clears throat> got me to install it, and so I uh, put it actually on a really old machine that's. Pretty much ready for the retirement bin. <clears throat> it's a 2007 um, iMac. <clears throat> it, it didn't just, it, it is a lot snappier because, I mean, it was been almost useless <laughs> to, to actually try and browse the web or do anything 
um, productivity wise on that machine. And so it is faster than that. Um, but one thing I'll note that's really sweet is once you create that uh, bootable flash drive, you don't have to go ahead and make changes to your drive. You can go ahead and just run it off of that flash drive. Yeah. In fact, that's something that they recommend um, doing initially just to kind of see how it's performing. Now, depending on what kind of USB drive you have, <clears throat> you may or may not be getting the fastest performance that you could get as far as your read-write speeds to that flash drive. And not only what that flash drive is, but also the actual USB port. Um, some of the Macs that we've had at school, for instance, have had like USB 2 and USB 3 ports, and you want to figure out, you know, which one is the faster one, because it really does make a difference. But anyway, um, I've tried it, and it, you know, it, it's pretty cool. I, I think the fact that it is 100% Google Chrome, like this isn't Chromium, this isn't kind of like Chrome, ah, it's straight up Chrome. I think that probably has to do with the enthusiasm that folks are having for it. It really would be ironic if Microsoft's you know, insistence that they have such a high bar of hardware requirements um, and memory for Windows 11, you know, leads to more machines, you know, turning to Chrome. But <clears throat> I think it's great to know about. And it's um, it's really important for us to emphasize security. Uh, we, we kind of beat that like a dead horse probably all the time here. But um, it's just really important. And it's important for us as individuals. It's important for our organizations as well. So the fact that this can be updated and getting these security updates um, and also just we've talked about this before, you know, the legacy operating systems have so much code and we're not in speaking of Windows, especially. But this is also um True to a degree, although Mac Mac is Linux based. But anyway, for Windows, certainly it wasn't designed for this Internet age. And there's just so many different vulnerabilities. And so looking at an operating system like Chrome OS and there's others like I think Fuchsia and, and other things in the works that are, you know, just new operating systems that have been designed from the ground up uh, to be a lot lighter, a lot uh faster and a lot more secure and also be able to get updates because that whole process of staying updated is absolutely key. It's key for all of our individual smartphones and tablets. It's true for every single computing device, um, which as a, as an aside, you know, I might've mentioned on the show months ago, <clears throat> we've got like, you know, 20 something smart switches and everything that we have lights that go on. And I talk to Google home and turn things on and off. And <clears throat> the firmware is in Chinese for some of these like inexpensive Amazon ones. And at one point I was like, I'm not doing that. I can't even read it. And then uh, anyway, I just got ahead. Okay. So <laughs> ho hopefully I'm not part of, you know, the revived Mirai botnet. That's you know, a real thing. Hacking internet of things, devices and, you know, part of cyber war, right? I mean, this is part of what's happening right now with the Ukraine with people trying to do coordinated denial of service of taxes who, who's, uh, you know, cre created, um, what are, what's it called? Um, bot armies, you know, um, anyway, it's crazy. So <laughs> keep your stuff updated and probably it's a good idea to buy things that have firmware that you can actually read and verify. Or maybe it's a reason to learn Mandarin or, or have your daughter do that. I'll have to ask her next time to say, Hey honey, can you read this? Does this, does this look like something legitimate that we should, anyway, we should be updating. All right. Excellent. Um, let's see. What about some Apple news? You want to talk about the Apple event a little bit? Sure. Well, um, it's coming on March 8th uh, next week. And, um, you know, one of the games that, you know, the Apple fan people 
uh, sometimes play is that the um, the the promotions for Apple events uh, tend to uh, have something in them that uh, tells you what they're going to announce, right? And I believe that um, uh, that they were talking about speed, right? Is that is that what peak the peak performance? Yes. P E E K yes. is the theme. So so. Um, um, and there's been a, a lot of speculation about what this might look like. You want to talk about that nine to five Mac article is that you put that in, right? Yeah. Um, okay. by the way, you know, if you really want to know, Jason uses semicolons, I use commas in between the sources <laughs> of date. So that's how you can tell, uh, this is nine to five Mac yesterday. Here's everything Apple could announce at its March 8th peak performance special event. Um, the one I'm most interested in is the, uh, would be an M2 processor, a MacBook Air. <clears throat> We're going to, I think, be purchasing one of those for the youngest child who will be heading to college. Um, and who knows, we may have to get one for my wife as well. Um, but there's probably not going to be new iPhones at this point. Uh, there's probably not going to be a new Apple Watch. But, you know, it's Apple has so many different product categories that they can't do them justice. And they really, you know, I think benefit from, from being able to um, have, have events that are kind of segmented so they don't have to try to update everything. I really found it interesting in this article that they gave a breakdown at the top of what this March event has been in the last three years. So going back to 2019, that was when Apple held its different kind of event. Um, and I think with, you know, that was, that was COVID, uh, lockdown. So virtual event, they introduced their new services of Apple TV plus Apple news, Apple arcade, Apple, Apple card and Apple pay. And <clears throat> then the next March in 2020, they introduced the iPad four and the iPhone SE two. I know that Peggy said in the chat, she's looking forward to the SE three, which we think is going to be, uh, announced. And last year in April, 2021, they had their spring loaded event and those were the colorful 24 inch iMacs. Um, iPad Pro, purple iPhone 12, Air, AirTags, which Jason loves. So anyway, I'm glad that they're not going to try to do everything together. And again, we've said it before, watch the event or at least the summary of the event. The introduction will be amazing. I think last time was the one where they had all these different musicians performing all over California. And then Tim Cook walks out of like... Death Valley somehow of the screen onto the stage. It was really, really cool special effects. Uh, but just the storytelling. I mean, Apple is, are masters. Apple is, Apple are. Apple, Apple, um, marketers and they're, they're storytellers. And I, I think that much like, you know, movies became much more engaging when people realized they didn't just have to film screenplays. They could take the camera out of the, the theater to all kinds of exciting places. You know, Apple does that so well. They mix special effects with, you know, shots from their campus, from all different kinds of places. I think it's and, and it's done for a global audience, not just this live audience. This is, this is really, I mean, it is a live event from the standpoint of they have this big splash and lots of people pay attention to it because, hey, it's the Apple event. Um, but I think it's absolutely fascinating to see the powerful ways they leverage video and enable people to, and then, and then with data and the graphics that they show and, and so many different things from a digital storytelling media communication standpoint, every single Apple event video is is like a masterpiece and would be worthwhile 
And I think Peggy, maybe you can, yeah, she did. Leslie Fisher, there she is. Maybe I could tune in. So Peggy has done this before. Leslie Fisher <laughs> hosts watch parties and it's fun to participate with her in that in Zoom. And so just like a sports commentator or something, you know, Leslie is like breaking it down and saying, you know, what she notices and giving her commentary. Um, what do they call that? Color commentary. So maybe I could, could tune in. So we'll include that link. You can go to lesliefisher.com. Um, and she has a calendar and it's called the peak, yeah, her peak performance event. So, and Peggy, are those, those are free, I think, to tune in with, with Leslie, or do you have to be a subscriber? We'll have her tune in in the chat. Yeah. So it's um, great. The, I have a related article that was actually released before the announcement of the March 8th event. And I noticed on that nine to five, uh, Mac article that, uh, uh perhaps a rebooted Mac mini, um, would be uh, coming in, in this direction. And I have to say, I did buy a Mac Mini M1 last year. It was, uh, I waited for a sale, and then I had a coupon. Uh, I think I bought it from um, one of the kind of uh, B-tier um, electronics resellers. I can't remember who it was off the top of my head, uh, Newegg or something along those lines. But um, and it's been a wonderful addition to my home for uh, what I think I paid a $700 uh, a, a, a price for that particular device. But uh, this article, which is from Digital Trends on February 22nd, Luke Larson argues that one of the best things that Apple could do, uh, 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 particularly for pro users that don't want to buy a $5,000 Mac Pro, is to release a Mac Mini Pro. And his argument is to take the insides of the newly released M1 Pro and Max chips um, with uh, the graphics performance uh, that is integrated on that board and stick it in a Mac Mini-like form factor. And there's been literally uh, a dozens of different renders of what that Mac Mini might look like, but I think that's a, an incredible idea, and um, I I think that that would be a, a, a really, really great addition, and probably would uh, really satisfy both um, home power users and kind of sub-professional power users uh, like myself and, and Dr. Fryer. I really didn't want to buy an iMac with the M1 chip, in part because um, I, I have good monitors at home and at work. Um, I actually, they're not high-end monitors. They're just big and bright, which is what I need them to be. But um, but that would be a really easy way in an educational application to provide your power users a really high-end experience. And I'm assuming that it would be, you know, especially since there would, wouldn't have to be a monitor uh, involved or the kind of uh, uh, portable form factor, they would probably be a relatively inexpensive uh, item to consider. But that's one of the things I'm really, 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 really hopeful for uh, in the March 8 event is some kind of, of Mac Mini Pro, which um, uh, I think would be, you know, truly amazing. So we got time for a few more articles here before we hit the uh, the hour kind of limit that we usually put behind ourselves. Um, I <clears throat> put this in a miscellaneous category, but this is a New York Times article. Um, who is behind QAnon? Linguistic detectives find fingerprints. Using machine learning, separate teams of computer scientists identified the same two men as likely authors of messages that fueled the viral movement. And so uh, this was from February 19th by David Kirkpatrick. And um, this is not uh, a topic for the young kids. Uh, it may not even be a topic that you want to, you know, broach with high school students. But, you know, delving into conspiracy theories, political conspiracy theories, um, the way that the QAnon movement, which, by the way, is not over, like the people who have 
been subscribing to QAnon are are tied to a lot of other conspiracy theories, <clears throat> and it's really important from a psychological standpoint and as and as like a civics and a governance standpoint to to take a look at trying to understand this and also trying to you know figure out what do we do about this and. Um, you know, and this regulation of social media companies, the technology correction, perhaps have something to, to do with the fact that we've had, you know, such amplification of conspiracy theories and so little accountability for those who have wielded the algorithms responsible for said amplification. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, and that kind of digital forensics research, and then this was forensic linguists, so bringing linguistic uh, knowledge and capabilities to the arena of <clears throat> forensics is just a just a fascinating article. So I would just want to bring that to everybody's attention. Sure. Do you have another article or two that you'd like to bring before we geek of the week? It. Um, yeah, uh, there was a great article on Lifehacker on February twenty fifth, and and I guess um, this is a, a a follow up to something I did a number of years ago. I used to be an incredible Evernote fan uh, back in the day, and in fact, I. Just stumbled across this the other day. I've probably given ten or so um, uh, conference presentations on Evernote. I used to have a pretty extensive Evernote workshop, but uh, and I, I paid for Evernote Premium. Um, but I eventually figured out that while Evernote was very valuable to me at the time, that paying for a third-party service that essentially duplicated some of the same stuff I was getting. Um, in uh, uh, Google, or if I were in Microsoft with, with OneNote, or in Apple World with Apple Notes, it just didn't make a whole lot of sense. But if you're still in Evernote world, one of the things that if you're not buying the premium uh, 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 subscription is that they keep cranking down on the free version to where it's become practically worthless. And, you know, if you have stuff stored there, or if you're kind of using that as a de facto thing, this great Lifehacker article essentially uh, gives you um, a lot of alternatives you should switch to. So just to go through their list for a moment, obviously, if you're in Microsoft World, OneNote could be a, a good alternative there. I'll admit that the OneNote interface, um, I've never really been able to wrap my brain around it, so it hasn't really become part of my workflow. But the people I know that love OneNote love OneNote. So uh, if you're in Microsoft World, that might be worth your time. Uh, Apple Notes uh, is a similar alternative. You're in all Apple world. It syncs it between all of your devices and, of course, has the magic of the integrated ecosystem that Apple's so know well, know, known well for. Um, Google Keep, uh, if you're in the Google ecosystem. Uh, Bear Notes, which I've never heard of before, but is a very OneNote-like interface and um, it also allows you to do things like exporting notes um, to HTML. Um, it is... Um, uh, 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 pay for service. Uh, it's only free for a single device, but the pro subscription is 15 bucks a year, which, uh, you know, is, is a couple of cups of, of fancy coffee and much cheaper than, than Evernote. Um, I would also argue it's also only for Apple devices. Um, Notion, which is an, uh, uh an iPad app, um, is also a, a, a nice piece um, Joplin, which I've never heard of before, um, also I think Mac only, and they also recommend my favorite alternative, which is also free, and it's Simple Note. Um, and Simple Note, something I have all my devices, and um, it's a good text dumpy. It's not for images, but it's a good text dumpy piece. So if you're stuck in in in, in Evernote world, 
um, and you're just not happy with the way their their freemium model has cranked down uh, a lot in in the last several years, there are alternatives available. You know, it'd probably be interesting to look at let's say Web 2.0 early adopters and what tools you know whether we were using you know delicious bookmarks and went to Digo and Evernote and when that changed <clears throat> because I've you know, for school, you know, switched over to Google Docs quite a few years ago. And I am 100% in that Apple Notes at, uh, category now. Yeah. The fact that it syncs through cl- iCloud, um, I can use my voice. I mean, I dictate a lot of my social media posts within Apple Notes. And I'm just constantly, and you can use hashtags in it now. So I'm just constantly putting things in there. It's my offboard brain, this idea that you Mm -hmm. get an idea. So, I mean, sometimes I'll put that into my Google Tasks, which I'm using that a little more, and I've fluctuated between different things. But Google Tasks, my calendar, and Apple Notes, those are my go-to. I got to get this idea out of my head and put it somewhere solutions. Yeah. And and by the way, um, I... I've been thinking about developing an online class um, for for my institution called Technology for Learning. I feel like we we spend you know we have a lot of classes available for you know apps for business like taught in like a CPE department, but you know those are the kind of things that you know if you're a nerdy teacher but not teaching computer science, don't be afraid to share some of those productivity tips with your kiddos. And in fact, to be honest, that's one of the things that I really miss about being in the classroom is both being inspired by some of the clever things my students did with tech, but also sharing my knowledge with them. And um, I still talk to some of my students that remind me of some of the cool things we were doing, um, including collaborative note-taking on, 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 on wikis. And, and again, I know I'm, you know, collaborative note-taking on wikis sounds like it's from the Stone Age, and from a tech standpoint, it, it kind of is. But, um, you know, I... That's it's great knowledge, and and you know if you are a tech savvy teacher, not teaching computer science classes um, or or apps classes, um, you know don't be afraid to share that knowledge because I, I think your students would find a lot of value in that. Jason Peggy's asking, how difficult is it to transfer all your content from Evernote to something else? Um, there are apps that do it, um, and in fact, if I remember correctly, that I pulled all of my Evernote stuff out to OneNote at one point, and I believe I also pulled it out to, I think it was a Google Drive documents, and um, I, I believe that there are several platforms available for just that purpose, um, but uh, it would depend on, I think, where you're trying to put them to, and I would imagine that some of those tools have a cost to them. Okay. All right. Well, as always, there are more articles <clears throat> than we have time to talk about, and if, that's a nice segue, you're interested in checking those out, we now have a Substack, and so you can find uh, our link to Substack, I think it's just edtechsr.substack.com. Um, you can subscribe, and when we publish new posts which, or episodes, which is generally on Friday, sometimes a little later, um, we'll also send out a list of all of our show notes, but then the, the links that we didn't get to. Uh, so that's maybe useful to somebody. So it's free. So, hey, check it out. Well, what is your Geek of the Week tonight, Dr. Neifer? Well, it's my real pleasure to announce that uh, uh, the NCC conference in Seattle that was scheduled for February was postponed due to COVID concerns, and they are going to run a virtual conference 
um, on April 21st and 22nd. And I have to say, you know, and I'm a little biased here because this is an organization I know well and has really been uh, a, a part of my ed tech uh, career since day one. Um, uh, my first NCC conference was in, in 1998, but NCC is offering a virtual conference on April 21st and 22nd. It's being positioned to be mostly in the uh, afternoon and evening because we know that a lot of teachers are having a hard time getting away from their districts due to professional development, so, or I'm sorry, due to sub shortages. Uh, so the notion of a virtual conference, and I believe all the sessions will be archived too, so you can refer to them later, um, are, um, uh, are gonna be available as well. The early bird pricing is $99, which I have to tell you is a real deal wonderful keynote speakers, wonderful featured speakers. Um, I'll be debuting two new presentations this year related to podcasts. Uh, one of them is a, pod, a classroom podcast production, um, which is a, a refurbishment of uh, an old presentation I gave a long time ago, but I've substantially updated for modern tools. And then a topic I'm extremely interested in, which is utilizing podcast content in the classroom. I think there's a shocking trove of wonderful, well-produced content in podcast world that I think would be totally engaging to students. Um, if you go to ncc.org slash conference 2022, uh, you can find out more. Again, the price right now is $99, which I think is a bargain um, at twice the price, but will provide a really great professional development opportunity. Again, ncce.org slash conference 2022. Fantastic. Well, I have two geeks of the week that are quick. The first one is a podcast. Uh, it is from Your Undivided Attention, which is the fantastic channel by the Center for Humane Technology, which we've talked about before. They were the ones behind the Social Dilemma documentary. This is an episode published on February 10th called How Science Fiction Can Shape Our Reality. And it is an interview with a science fiction author I had not ever heard of before, Kim Stanley Robinson. His most recent novel is The Ministry for the Future. And this is, unlike many science fiction stories, not dystopian, but rather utopian about the ways that the Earth and humans can come together to defeat climate change and avoid this existential threat, which many people in the state where I live and other places deny, you know, is happening at all. Uh, so I thought that was super interesting and especially overlaying it with, I think I mentioned Moonrise, which is a Washington Post podcast series about the Apollo moon landing and just the moonshot and the competition with the Soviet Union and all this declassified stuff that we have and interviews and just amazing. But, but they also talk a lot in that about science fiction and how science fiction really paved the way for the space age and the space race and authors and science fiction authors specifically really do have a powerful role to play, not only in what we read, but also what we see in movies and, and shaping public perception about a lot of things. And then my last one is really fun. Um, I haven't investigated this in depth, but it sounds pretty fascinating. You know, uh, March is upon us and that means March madness. Well, if you're not a sports fanatic, um, how about an animal fanatic? There is uh, March mammal madness and you can check this out by finding the ASU uh, LibGuide created by the scholarly comm librarian, Annalie Perry, who's Grumpater on Twitter. Um, and so this is <laughs> a competition that you can find in March that has to do with animals and, and which animals I think would theoretically win smackdowns. And anyway, I know there's a lot of kids interested in animals, a lot of teachers too. <laughs> it's just kind of whimsical and interesting. It's a different March Madness, 
if that is your thing. So Dr. Neifer, when you're not here helping enlighten us on the facts behind the Ukraine conflict and so many other issues, bringing us the real Google News and Apple News, where can folks find you? Uh, best place to find me is Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach, and um, I mostly talk about education there and, and not politics. That's right. Well, I am on westfryer.com. You can also find me on Twitter at WFryer, and my link in my profile for a while now has been this milkshake site that I created, which is really cool. It's a free app that you can download to create a mobile-friendly site, and you can connect to my cooking stuff as well as the EdTech things that I like to talk about. But this has been the EdTech Situation Room. We apologize for, well, I apologize for my <clears throat> oversight last week and responsibility for not having a show. Uh, but hey, sometimes it happens and sometimes, you know, usually we're here. But we're here generally on Wednesday nights. Tonight's unusual to be here on a Thursday, but usually Wednesday night uh, at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain, or wherever that happens to be in your neck of the woods. You can get all of our show notes by visiting edtechsr.com. Uh, slash links. And on edtechsr.com, you'll find not only the YouTube embed, but all the links that we talk about in the show, as well as um, little 32 kilobit MP3 audio versions that you can download and subscribe. And we hope you will subscribe in your favorite podcatcher. Uh, please rate us. We don't actually say that on the show very often, but I know that makes a difference in discoverability. Tell your friends, share us on social media. And you can also subscribe to our Substack again by visiting edtechsr.com substack.com. So until next time, we encourage you to stay safe, stay savvy, use Wikipedia in your own teaching in the next week, and we hope to see you soon on a live episode of the EdTech Situation Room. Good night, everybody. Good night.